Welcome to Creativity School. This is the podcast all about how to tap into your creativity and get your greatness out of you and into the world. I'm your host, Grace Chan, and each week we'll get lessons on how to start the thing you've always wanted to start and learn the tips and strategies you need for how to be awesome at it. If you're one of those people that feels a calling to do something, make something, or be something more, if you want to start shining your light and share it with the world, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to episode 26 of Creativity School. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is an awesome way to listen to your books the same way you listen to podcasts. I love it because it's easier for me to consume content by listening to things on the go while I'm driving, while I'm walking my dogs, instead of sitting down and watching a video or reading a book. So I love Audible. And if you want to keep the feeling of inspiration and motivation going after you listen to an episode of this show, I highly recommend you check out Liz Gilbert's book, Big Magic, on Audible. It is the perfect companion to this show. There are so many messages that are in alignment between her book and the things we talk about here. So get started with the free audiobook download and 30-day free trial that you can cancel at any time by heading over to creativityschoolpodcast.com slash audible. That's creativityschoolpodcast.com slash audible. And if you use my link to sign up, you'll be supporting the show directly. I hope you like Audible as much as I do. I hope you all had an amazing week. I did. I got a message from a listener this week that really just made me so happy to receive it. By the way, I love hearing from you guys. So reach out to me anytime on Instagram or Facebook. On Instagram, I'm at the Grace Chan. But I got this message and it made me so happy. So I'm just going to read it to you really quickly. And she said, I've been saving your podcast for my long commute today. Just wanted to say thanks to you and your inspirational podcast. About a month ago, I mentioned I'm looking to move on to another company. Well, today, I start my first day. I kept hearing your words and homie's words in my head throughout the entire process until I got the offer. It gave me an unexplainable patience about it and faith that it would all work out. So she's referencing homie Diaz, who was on my show on episode 18, And that episode was called Don't Stress About the Unknown of Your Creative Path. And we talk on that episode about not stressing about the unknown of your creative path. So Nairi, thank you for sending me that message. I'm so happy for you. And I'm so glad that you had tools to deal with the stress of the unknown of waiting to hear back on a job offer. Really, truly, it makes me so happy to hear that the things that we talk about on this show are impacting you and helping you out in the real world in your day-to-day lives. Speaking of getting messages, I got a record number of messages from people about episode 24, which was all about imposter syndrome. So, If you haven't listened to that one, I highly recommend you go back and listen to episode 24 on imposter syndrome because clearly it hit a nerve with listeners because it's something that we all struggle with. No matter how long you've been doing this, no matter where you're at in your career, 
Imposter syndrome is real and it never goes away. And I shared three tips on that episode that I used to help me with my imposter syndrome. And I think that that message just really resonated with so many of you too. So I loved hearing all your messages about that episode in particular because it was a very deeply personal one to me and I was kind of scared about sharing it. So (laughs) I'm really glad that it really resonated with you as much as it resonated with me. I also want to give a shout out to a member of the Creativity School with Grace Chan Facebook group. I want to say hey to Joel. What's up, Joel? Just want to give you a quick shout out. Joel is my friend and he just recently started listening to the podcast and joined the group. And Joel is a videographer and he shared that he's been working on videos and just getting into learning about how to shoot and how to edit. And man, dude, your stuff is awesome. It's so good. I can't believe you just started doing this because really the quality of your work is amazing. And I'm so glad that you shared with us the stuff that you've been working on because it's really great. And I am not just saying that because I'm your friend. So if you guys want to come join us over at the Creativity School with Grace Chan Facebook group, you can search for us on Facebook. Facebook or just click the link in the show notes. I haven't been in there as much lately just because it's been a really busy month of traveling and work and so I haven't had much time to pop in there but what I envision for that space is just for us to have a chance to connect with each other and get to know other people who are out there really finding the courage to make the stuff that they want to make. So come join us if you want. This week I am so honored to have our guest Benjamin Von Wong on, who is better known on the internet as Von Wong. So for those of you who don't know who he is, he is the first photographer that I have had on this show, which is kind of surprising given that I'm a photographer. And wow, what an amazing photographer to have on. I am personally so inspired by Benjamin. I have loved his work for a very long time. And on a whim, I completely just cold emailed him and I couldn't believe that he responded back so quickly and said yes. So it is truly an honor to have Ben on because his work, you guys, it is, I don't know how else to describe his work except as epic. I mean, the scale of his work is incredible. It's epic. It's surreal. It's almost like hyper real. It's like, what am I looking at? Is this CGI? What is this? It's just so beautiful. By the way, as you're listening to this intro, go to my Instagram page and check out his work that I've shared or go to his Instagram page and look at this because I think it'll make everything that we talk about on this episode all that more impactful. His work is just beautiful and amazing and he is a hugely influential person in the photography space and his work regularly goes viral. He tells epic stories through his photography and videography experiences, and it's been seen on Adweek, Forbes, USA Today, Mashable, The Huff Post, Guinness Book of World Records, you name it. His work has been featured on it because it's not just a pretty picture. It is incredibly impactful because the message that he has behind the work. And lately, it's really been about the environment. And he's really been using his photography and these art installations to speak to the problems that we have on Earth resulting from too much plastic, too much fast fashion, too much e-waste, 
He's done projects, for example, where he gathered 168,000 used plastic straws in Vietnam and turned it into an installation that looked like it was the parting of the plastic sea. He called this stracopolis, and he took incredible photos of people in this space. I find Benjamin's story so amazing because he's an engineer turned self-taught photographer that is now making such a huge impact with the incredible work that he creates. And it was such a treat to dig into his story, dig into the way he creates his work, and listen to him share all his creative wisdom. He's kind of like a creativity Yoda, I think, just without the backwards speaking. Benjamin shares so much about his process and how he very strategically layers everything he does together, from the photography to the -the behind-the-scenes videos that he creates to share how he creates these incredibly epic sets that he does, to the work he does to reaching out to the press so that people can actually see his work. There's one word to me that stands out in this interview, and it's this idea of strategy. He puts so much thoughtfulness into the work he makes, not just creative thoughtfulness, but very intentional strategy to make sure that the work is purposely impactful and can then get out into the world and reach the people that it needs to reach. And as I said, he's all about the behind the scenes process. So I highly recommend you go check out his website or his Instagram because he is very well known for showing exactly how he creates what he does behind the scenes. I love this conversation with Benjamin. It personally inspired me so much, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Without further ado, here is Von Wong. Hi, Benjamin. Thank you so much for joining me on my show today. Thank you for having me. So your full name is Benjamin Von Wong, but you are known across the globe as Von Wong. That is your artist name. And you are a viral epic photographer, a visual engineer. Your work has generated over 100 million views for causes like ocean plastic to e-waste to fashion pollution. I could just go on and on and on. But I'm curious if you want to tell us in your own words what you do. Oh gosh, this is actually something I generally struggle with quite often because it's, I find it so hard to describe what I do in words. If I'm at a bar and I'm talking to someone, I'm like, oh, let me just take out my phone and show you. The work that I do, I think more than anything is layered. I try to create many layers to every single campaign. Let's call it that. There'll be like an entire build up to what we're going to create. There's going to be uh, an experience right now, which I've started layering on into my projects. And then from there, we'll shoot photos, document the whole thing by videos, and then create an entire marketing campaign around it. The end result is sort of an amalgamation of things, but it really depends on the the context of the project. That makes sense. And since this is an audio medium, I'm going to try my best to describe for the listeners what it is like to view your work. It's epic. It's obviously photography, but like you said, it's more than photography because it is so layered. But first glance, it is an incredibly epic photo experience. It's surreal. It's like hyper real. What's Top of mind for me is Stracopolis. I can't pronounce that. <laughs> Stracopocalypse. Stracopocalypse. Okay. So that was like, what was that? Like uh, hundreds of straws you gathered? Uh, 168,000 straws that we collected over six months and created into the shape of two parting waves to represent the parting of the plastic sea. Oh my God. I just yeah. got chills hearing you describe that. So you guys listening, it's just imagine 168,000 used straws. It's like this epic art installation. It looks like 
literally like the giant parting of the sea. And this is just you regularly create work like this. So this is like the latest one you did that went crazy viral. But you have so many campaigns that you've done that have gone crazy viral and been on places like Forbes, USA Today, Mashable, HuffPost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) So I, I personally, as a photographer, I'm so excited to have you on. I think you're the first photographer I've invited on the show. And I told you this in the pre recording that I've been a huge fan of your work. So it's really just an honor to have you here and talk about everything. I'm so excited. Woo! <laughs> Woo! Yeah, get to be the first. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> this is the question I ask everyone when they first come on because I think it's interesting to sort of see this connection. But what did you want to be when you were a kid? What did you want to be when you grew up? I think it really just depended on my interests at the time. I at some point wanted to be a video game designer, as I think many boys <laughs> who discover video games really want to be. And then my parents were like, "Okay, cool." They put me in a coding camp, and I was like, "Oh no, 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 not for me! I can't just sit in front of a computer for a gajillion hours like decoding and debugging things." I think I wanted to be an architect at some point, and then I got an internship in an architectural firm, and I was just like, "Oh no, no, no! I'm just sitting here and I'm." creating plans and it's actually not that inspirational. And um, and I think, I mean, there's even chapters of my life where I was like, oh, I just want to be a truck driver. I could like drive trucks for six months out of the year and then play video games for six months out of the year. (laughs) I mean, like literally just never knew what was going to happen with me. I just, I don't even think I know what I want to become from here to the next phase. And I think I've just kind of become okay with that. I think the world is changing faster than we can imagine anyways. It's almost like just make the three to five year plans and let technology in the world's direction dictate the rest and just be adaptable more than anything else. Oh, you just said some really awesome things that I want to call out because first of all, I love that your parents gave you the opportunities to explore the things that you're interested in. Have they always been so supportive of you? I think that's like had to evolve. There's this kind of like a cognitive dissonance, I think. So like my parents are first generation uh, Chinese Malaysian immigrants. And as I think when they grew up, they had to go through many, many struggles to get us to where we are. And then so when growing up, as is the Asian mentality is to provide like all these opportunities for your kids, but then they have a very narrow definition of what they think success should look like, what success should be, stability and all this other stuff. Like when I first graduated, I studied hard rock mining engineering, by the way. And when I first graduated, I didn't want to be an engineer. Like I knew that I didn't want to be an engineer, but but my parents weren't open to the idea of letting me like just wander and frolic around as I search for meaning and purpose. And so they just, they just said, go get a job. And I did. Um, so I just worked for three and a half years and kind of just followed the path that was sort of laid out based on my life trajectory. When I quit my day job, the idea was for me in my mind and what I sort of pitched to my parents was that I was going to get an MBA. Um, but because I quit my job in December slash January, the MBA programs are all starting in the fall. And I just thought like, well, I might as well travel and like see where this photography thing can take me in terms of like traveling the world. And then that just went well and it, it never stopped. And and I think initially there's like a lot of fear. I think my mom's still a little worried about like stability in the future and like where things are going, as am I, as I think most creatives are. But at the same time, I think they kind of came to this realization that you know, they worked really hard to give us all these opportunities, not to define where we should be going, but rather where we want to go. And I think it just took a long time for them to actually like see the journey. Like, like I think I had to prove myself because when I was a kid, I was all over the place. I was a total mess. I'd get bored of things every couple months. And I don't think there was very much career prospects in my, the way I led my childhood. <laughs> yeah. I think that 
what you shared about your parents wanting stability for you is very common in Asian American communities. I was going to actually ask you about that as cliche as it is, but mm-hmm. it's just so common for all of us. And also for those of us who have parents who just don't understand the creative path. You know, also what you said about not really having a long-term path, maybe beyond three to five years, because you're always willing to change and adapt and evolve with whatever life may throw at you. I honestly think that's the best way to be a creative because you have to keep evolving. Yeah, for sure. I think I think there are a couple ways to think about it. One, there's this talk online by a guy called Neil Gaiman. He's an author. He wrote Sandman. And he has this amazing commencement speech. And he just talks about the importance of, you don't need to know where you're going. You just need to know which direction to walk. And, and that direction can change and shift over time as your priorities change and shift. But as long as you have a direction, you won't feel too lost. As, as time goes by, you kind of become more and more okay with not quite knowing, but kind of having enough faith in your own abilities because you know yourself so well, not because of arrogance or anything else, but like, you know what your strengths and weaknesses are. You know, things will pan out if only you work hard enough and you could just kind of keep laying those foundational stones as you kind of walk towards this mountain. And I thought that was like super insightful. Do you have a North star that guides you? Like no matter what you're doing and where you are in the world, is there one intention or focus and purpose and meaning that keeps you going? The overarching intention would be to lead the most impactful, positive life that I possibly can. Mm -hmm. But that alone isn't really enough because there are many ways to lead a positive life. And I think for me, the way I try to curate that is to make sure that I do it in a way that is in a lifestyle that I enjoy. Mm -hmm. And so I think many people focus a lot on profession. And I don't think it's about the profession. It's not about the craft. It's not about the art that you do. It's about the kind of the lifestyle around it, the entire ecosystem that enables you to do what you do best. And so how do you stay motivated? How do you stay inspired? What are the the components that you need in order to get there? And how do you maintain that ecosystem? Because just like success, you don't really reach it. You just, you simply just maintain it. And so you need to be in a state where you can maintain that success and allow it to continue to thrive and grow. Mm. So in my case, for example... I really love traveling. I really love meeting people. I really love being inspired. I love being surprised and delighted by things that I find. And and I just want to be useful. And so I kind of take these, these factors and I put them all in and I say, okay, what kind of life should that look like? And that's why I travel so much. That's why I go to a lot of conferences. I've layered in speaking engagements. I've layered in some educational opportunities. And then when I'm home, I'm also just continuously networking. It's the reason I chose to move to San Francisco from Canada, because it has like that network of individuals that can empower me to potentially do greater things. It's where all the companies are, where like more chances of meetings can happen. And so it's all about, for me, developing that sort of the world that I can thrive in. I like that you use the word ecosystem. You, you have to surround yourself in an ecosystem that supports what your bigger goals are. And even moving to San Francisco to, again, be in that ecosystem that's really serving you. Were you always so actionable, like even as a kid? You said you didn't have purpose and you're kind of all over the place, but it looks like to me from the outside, especially now, you have an idea for something and then you do it. I think as a kid, it probably just manifested as mildly obsessive over things. Mm. (laughs) You know, like I I get really excited about something and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. And then I just drop everything and just like run in this direction. And then, and then I get bored. Isn't that kind of what you're doing now though? Like I see that in your projects. It's not that you get bored, but it's like you get mildly obsessed. You gather 168,000 straws and then you do this cool thing and then you move on to the next one. 
Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> I, I don't actually know if I could do a longer term project. It's, it, I mean, I've never had the opportunity to really create something that was like a multi-year span thing. But so, so this is kind of what I was saying earlier about having to know yourself, know what makes you tick, know what you enjoy, and then like leveraging that to the best of your ability in order to make things work. Being obsessive, I think on paper is probably not a great thing. But then if you put it in the context of a really unique project that has an end deliverable, then it could become a really great thing. And so being able to read yourself and find out what your strengths actually are and how these they can play into a career is sort of really interesting. Mm, well, I want to rewind a little bit and get into your origin story so we can find out how you began doing that. And you had mentioned very briefly, you were an engineer, you were a hard rock mining engineer, and that was the day job you had for three and a half years. Yeah. What is that? (laughs) Oh, well, you know, gold, silver, copper, minerals, like all these, like iron, all these things come from the ground and someone needs to design the systems in which we go in and pull them out. I know it sounds very exotic. I think in San Francisco, when I say mining engineer, everyone thinks data mining. (laughs) But in, um, in Canada, it's just one of the major verticals of engineering, at least at McGill when I was there. So there's like mechanical, electrical, civil, chemical, and then mining and metallurgy was the the fifth category. And I mean, it wasn't a very big category. I graduated with seven people in my class. But when I went to university, you know, I was like, okay, I'm Asian. I'm good at math and physics. Uh, My dad's an engineer. I guess I'm going to be an engineer too. Mm -hmm. And then I went to this open house and just kind of went talking to different professors. And the guys at the mining booth were like, well, you get the most travel opportunities. You get a paid internship. You know, you get the highest pay categorically amongst all the others. I'm like, okay, why not do mining? (laughs) And then I just, um, I just rolled with it. How did you get start getting into photography? Were you doing that at the same time? I bought my first camera in November 2007 and I bought a camera because I was working in a mine in Winnemucca, Nevada, which is about an hour from Burning Man to give you kind of contextually where I was basically in the middle of nowhere and a girl broke up with me. And so I was like, ah, crap, if I don't find something to do, I'm going to go crazy. And so I was just like wondering what to do with myself and the stars were pretty. And so I just went out, bought a camera at Walmart, wasn't good enough, returned it, bought a bigger camera, still trying to take pictures of the stars, wouldn't work. So I had to like get a car from the company, drive to the city next door, which was like three hours drive away. And then bought a camera there at a camera store and then just proceeded to like read the manual and learn how to take pictures. So I did mention obsessive earlier. (laughs) It's kind of an example of it. I was like, this is going to be my next thing. And so it was like photography. And then somehow photography out of all the other things just stuck. Did it feel different? Like what was it about it that made it stick for you? I think it did a very good job of soothing my ego. Mm. (laughs) If I were to be completely honest, Mm -hmm. it's like the feedback loop of like posting and then having people like it and comment on it. And then you can be like, oh, cool, that worked really well. I'm going to post more. And then you just keep going through the cycle. So, So that was like the ego part that was really good. There was a creative expression part of like not feeling lonely because suddenly when you have a camera in your hands, you always have something to do. Mm. Like it doesn't matter. Like you can go to a party. It doesn't matter if no one's talking to you. You can just take out your camera and take pictures. And then there was also the aspect of community. Like as I started getting deeper into it, I found like people who were better at it, who I could learn from and grow from. And then from there, you would have like meetups and get togethers. You'd like reach out and find models and like try to do something. And so like there's something very anchoring about it in a particular time frame that I felt a little bit lost and not sure what to do with myself. And I think things really got more serious when I got paid for the first time to do um, a project, basically someone in my photo club had been referred a job and he couldn't do it. And he asked if I would take over. And I was paid to like attend this party, 
take pictures for about $250, have unlimited drinks and hang out with all sorts of people in, in this gala. And I was like, oh, this is so fun. I can get paid to have fun. This is a thing. I think I've never gotten paid to have a good time before. And that's when it really like clicked into place. Like, oh, there's something bigger here. Because there was a prospect of money within the event photography space, I used that as an excuse to buy a ton of gear. I was like, okay, well, this is now an investment. I'm not just buying toys. I'm investing into a business. And so every dollar I ever earned from like event photography just went straight back into like buying new gear and new toys. And so that allowed me to grow pretty fast. I think a year and a half later, I started to realize that it felt like I had a job. Like I was like, oh, hey, I have two jobs right now. I have like my engineering job and I have my photography job. That wasn't the plan. Was that just a side hustle that entire time you were doing that? Yeah, it was just a side hustle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, oh, wait, this was not the plan. This is not what I set out to do. And so I just shut down the photography business side of things and started to like go back to just doing creative things. And so I think I started off with a 365 challenge, uh, taking a photo every day. Well, with a mission of hitting 365 days, I only got to 100. And I was like, okay, that was a lot of fun, but I don't have the time to create the scale of stuff that I really want to do. I stopped with 365 with the intention of doing bigger, more complex projects, which is kind of where you start seeing the seeds of like where my work is today. And was that when you still had your day job? Yep. Still had my day job, still trucking along. Yeah. So so the cool thing is, if you're curious, you can go into my Flickr. If you type like Flickr Von Wong, you can go all the way back to 2008 and see my first photos. It's a wow. sort of like an archive of like all the photos I've done and you can see how I've kind of improved or lack thereof. And so like when I tell the story of my journey, it's become this sort of polished timeline where like one thing led to the other very like linearly. But the truth is, is like it's a little bit all over the place. Yeah, as it always is. It's never like a totally linear straight path. And by the way, thank you for sharing about your Flickr page because on my Instagram, when I promote the shows, I really love showing early work from people and then where they're at now because I love showing that progression. <laughs> You know, people get so hung up on not being good enough when they first start. And I think it's really empowering to see where artists actually begin because it's not where they are now. Yeah, absolutely. It's like that thing from Ira Glass. Yes. Oh, he talks about the gap. Yeah. Yes. You know, you know, you have good taste, but then somewhere along the way, it just doesn't quite hit. And I think it, it takes a little while to get over your own ego of like thinking you're really awesome. I think maybe a year into my photography, I probably thought I was more awesome at photography than I do now. You know what I mean? (laughs) Exactly. It's like the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And it's just like a really funny equation. So it's almost like just sticking to it and then having conviction to like always get better. And then at some point you actually become better. And it is just such a part of the creative process. I think especially for newbie creatives, you don't realize how much of that process is of being not very good at the start and working at it until you get much better. And people perceive that as failure, I think, a lot in the beginning. And it's just literally a part of the process. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And failure is sort of like multidimensional. A project is not a success or a failure. It can be a success in some ways and it can be a failure in others. For example, my photo can be a failure, but after I Photoshop it, the image can become a success and the campaign can be a failure because it didn't reach as many people. But it can still be a successful project where everyone felt fulfilled, happy and proud, but it can still be a failure if it didn't have the impact that you wanted it to. Right. So like, I think life is non-binary 
And mm. we kind of should get out of that success failure kind of trope. It's just like all projects have good and bad that come out of it. And it's up to you to make the best, you know, like everyone always wishes for the best in all dimensions. But in some ways, I think it's sort of this balance. You create a thing, you want to be happy and proud that you did it. But then you also want to make sure that you look back and be like, okay, what could have been better um, for the next time? And it doesn't make it less successful if there's something that you could have done better. That was so good. If I was Oprah, I'd be like, that is a tweetable moment. (laughs) 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 That was really good. So then after three and a half years, you quit your job and you said you just started traveling? I quit my day job, powered less by the desire to become an artist that seemed like a step down in this Asian social hierarchy ladder of um, expected professions. And so for me, it was more just like a break. I was like, you know, this job thing didn't work out. I just want to kind of travel and run away from Montreal. What kind of different things could I possibly do? And and so the first thing I did was like travel the farthest place I possibly could for free using points. And I ended mm. up in Israel, which I knew nothing about. But I had a friend who had a sofa where I could stay on. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, I'm going to go check, check out this thing. I did that for two weeks, came back. It was like such a blast. It was It was so fun to be wandering. And I just wanted to keep traveling, but I didn't want to pay for it because I didn't want to eat up into my savings. So I kind of started thinking about different ways I could travel for free. Um, and the first thing that I did was, was, was try to do a Kickstarter project. And so I launched this Kickstarter with the intention of creating a book or uh, creating some tutorials for, for people on documenting the adventures that I, that I was going to go to. And I managed to raise like $12,500 to travel through Europe for a month. How? Did you have a platform at that point? How did you raise so much money? By that point, I had 7,000 fans on Facebook, which doesn't sound like a lot. But it, it was at a time where it meant you actually had 7,000 people seeing your shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now it's like I have, I don't know, 310,000 followers on Facebook, but I don't even know if 5,000 people see it. Yeah, it's changed a lot. It's just changed so much. Footnote on, on this part is that like listening to other people's stories is always fun. But even if you can't replicate my success today, like I wouldn't even be able to replicate my success today knowing everything I know today because mm. the world that... I made my career in is not the same world as we are in today. And I think that's something that's really important. You go online and you see all these like, here's a 10 step story to success. It worked for me. It can work for you. That's like totally flawed. Like the, the worlds are changing so much. The environments in which we become successful are changing so much that it's sort of irrelevant. Like there are best practices, but nothing more than that. But yeah, so to answer your question, yeah, I had 7,000 followers made made a Kickstarter video. It it was a ton of work. I don't know if I did a very good job on delivering on the perks, but it, it really sort of gave me a framework in which I was like, oh, there is something here by traveling and shooting. And suddenly like I went from, because I was shooting throughout Europe, I suddenly went from photographer from Montreal to international photographer, not because I was getting paid, but just because my work was all over the place. And then I I kind of like wanted to keep traveling again, still not paying for it, figured out that it was possible to just do photography workshops all over the world. So reach out to a photo club, say, hey, I'm interested in potentially coming. Do you want to gather a group of people who are willing to pay money for a weekend and I'll come and do something? And I just kind of did that and bounced from place to place to place to place. And every time I ended up in a new place, I organize a creative photo shoot while doing a lesson. Um, And that just really allowed me to sort of discover a little bit more of the creative work that I could do and get inspired under time crunches that were sort of manufactured because I'd only be in a specific place for a certain amount of time. And if someone wanted to do something with me, they had to make time for me, which worked really well. And then over time, I think I just slowly got better, got better at my marketing, built up a following that was a little bit more solid and I started getting paid work. What kind of paid work? 
like just commercial work, like people, like people would start commissioning requests and so forth. So when I quit my day job, I was at like 500 to a thousand dollars per photo shoot. I think maybe 1500. And then as I started traveling and I started like my style started getting more and more recognized, I started getting more sponsorships. I started getting better. I just started like increasing my rate, like 3000, 5000, 10,000. Wow. And I think it was just really interesting to watch that it wasn't so much about the quality of work, but finding finding people who had had the money. And so I, I discovered that like advertising campaigns, advertising dollars are super high. I mean, you're talking like hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars of production budget in order to bring mm-hmm. something crazy to life. That's changing today because it's less about the really big, crazy viral stunts because virality doesn't work the way it used to. Now it's a lot more about A-B testing and quantifying the performance of, of smaller pieces of content. But I was able to sort of ride that wave and play around in that space a little bit. How did you start getting the attention of advertising agencies? Were you reaching out to them directly or were they finding you through the work you had created? I tried pitching and pitching just never really worked out for me. I'm either not really good at it or it just never converted. I focused on the strategy of just creating really shareable content that would get me published in places. So one of my like big successes was tying a model underwater in a shipwreck in Bali, 30 meters underwater. And like that project got so much traction that it created a lot of like inbound requests from companies who wanted the same thing. So like that one directly led to a project with Ballantines, which is a whiskey company where they mm. wanted a similar like underwater photo. Because like nobody ever hires you to do something they've never seen before. They yeah. just hire you to do something same, same, but different. Like you need to be able to forage out on your own and prove out what you can do and what you see in your mind. And then people can like come in and fund it. It's it's just like a really interesting, like it's an interesting world. And then how long was that time period from when you first started traveling to now when you're getting hired by ad agencies to recreate some of these big viral things that you've done? It's really hard to say because it's not it's not linear that way. It's sort of yeah. just it clumps. I just ask because I think people think... Either it takes forever or it's really fast. And I want people to have this idea of reality. I think the reality is that it's um it's very haphazard. So you follow all these best practices and you just chase after quality performance and consistency and you just do this grind. And then these random payoffs come in. Like I'm sure you've also had random things come in com- from complete nowhere. And you're just like, how the hell did these guys find me? I have no idea, but look, look, look at this awesome thing that came out of it. And it's just like, you just keep planting those seeds, but you have to like plant them strategically, I think. And so probably the best kind of pivots that I did that really contributed to making me get more discovered when I first started out, like when I was first quitting my day job, I was doing a lot of education. I was like teaching, I was building up a following, I was sharing the process, but very technical details on how you lit things, how you produce things, how you like it was very much for photographers. That did a really good job of getting me known in the photography sphere. Like I got into like Creative Live that way and started doing a lot of talks at trade shows. And that unlocked like a ton of sponsorships for me from Juan Color to Smug Mug to even getting like a Mamiya Leaf. Um, like an 80 megapixel camera, which is for those of the, those on the show who don't know, it's like $65,000 of camera gear. Wow. You know, so like there's this point where I was shooting with $100,000 of gear that I had gotten for free. I had to return some of it. But ultimately, like, is this crazy amount of stuff that I managed to receive purely because I was 
reaching the demographic that all these photography companies cared about. But the problem with that is none of them ever wanted to pay out like a salary. That's not where jobs come from. And so at some point I pivoted from that. So I, I built out my stability in my career and my reputation through education. And then from there, I started pivoting and I started going more like, how can I make things go viral? How can I get things in the public eye? How can I get published by all these different press outlets that you were quoting earlier? Like those were designed like I do a lot of like manual press outreach. My stuff doesn't get picked up because it gets picked up. It gets picked up because I send a bunch of emails to a bunch of reporters to try to get them to write about me. <laughs> and like mm-hmm. I kind of, you know, I try to leverage like local press. So I'm shooting somewhere internationally to tell them that this thing is happening and get all the coverage. And like do a lot of that sort of press push in order to to get the eyeballs, which generate the inbounds because I hate pitching. And so I think it's really much more so about someone discovering the stuff that I do. And then most recently, what's been really interesting, and this is like sort of a new realization, is that if you get into the impact space and you're tackling issues that aren't going away, then your content is evergreen. For example, like Mm -hmm. all my plastic awareness projects only become more relevant over time because the crisis is only getting worse. Now, if you type plastic awareness artists or anything along those lines in Google, the chances are my name is going to show up within the first page of any search. And so when a company, which is now trying to pivot into the more sustainable impact driven space, starts looking for different people they can collaborate with, I become top of mind. And so I think sort of like making sure that you have a read of the landscape of what's to come, of what's developing understanding what you're good at and what you want to do more of and just kind of having all those things in your radar is just really important to have that awareness and reflectiveness and then the the rest will sort of come like I don't think you can truly plan it that well but you can position yourself based on your knowledge of yourself and your knowledge of your of the world around you. I love that so much. And the, when did you start becoming interested in using your photography as your activism? I think I've always been interested in like, I mean, I think everyone's interested generally in helping others. The biggest pivotal moment when I realized that my life or the way I led my life mattered was close to when I quit my day job. I was uh, putting together a presentation for a local photo club and it was the first time ever that I was going to present to a room of like 50 or 100 people. And so I put on Facebook like, hey, if the work that I've created has made a difference in your life in any way, shape or form, please let me know. I'm just really curious to hear back from you. And um, most people just wrote the standard like, oh, you inspired me to to do photography or like you inspired me to do these ideas. But there's this one kid, um, his name's Tyler Grace out of Australia, who said that like discovering my photography basically saved his life because... He's, he's chronically ill, bedridden, and just depressed and didn't know what to do with himself. But when he discovered my photography, he's like, oh, this is what I want to do. And actually this year, he, he won like conceptual Australian photographer of the year or something. Wow. Um, and so it just like kind of set him on this path. And I was like, oh, I'm just like here, like having a good time with myself and like taking, <laughs> taking these fun photo projects and sharing it with the world. But there are like real consequences. Like people take that stuff and it can affect people even if you don't see it even if you don't know it's there and I think that just like first started yeah what was your first project that really delved into the environmental issues that you care so much about the first time I did an environmental project was I don't know what year this was I think it was like two and a half years ago I had decided that I wanted my work to be social impact driven but I didn't know how because fantasy and social impacts sort of don't necessarily naturally fit together. I didn't know anyone who was doing it, but I just I just thought like, okay, the work that I'm doing is great and I'm inspiring people by the process, but the photographs themselves don't have any purpose or meaning behind it. And so is there a way to fuse the two? Is there a way for my work to actually have 
meaning and purpose in its inception and its creation phase. Sorry to interrupt you really quickly. Before you started getting into your social impact work, you were doing more fantasy work. Is that correct? Like I saw some really cool photos you did of people dressed really cool, like in a tree. And you mentioned the woman tied to a boat. That's kind of the stuff you were doing. Yeah, I think all my work was like the words you described earlier, like hyper-realistic, surreal, fantastical. I mean, my work has always had this very like painterly sort of look like they're Photoshop, look like they could be CGI sort of feeling to them. And I was trying to find a way to blend that style with something more meaningful where the photograph itself had a message, not, mm. not just in the process. And I didn't know how to do it, but I had set myself this goal. I had given myself one year. I was like, I'm going to give myself one year to figure out how to integrate social impact. And I'm not going to accept any work that doesn't have an impact component to it. <laughs> and that year was like a really frustrating year because I, I, in my mind, I was like, oh, I can just reach out to all these nonprofits. I have this portfolio. Everyone's going to want to do something. I'm not going to ask for any money. I just want to, I just want to have examples. Turns out nonprofits extremely risk averse. No one really wanted to take a risk on what I was doing because I didn't know what I wanted to do either. Remember what I said about people only want to hire what they see. Mm -hmm. um, that's especially true with nonprofits because they're they're not the kinds of people who like go like, oh yeah, we're not sure what to do with you, but you have potential, so let's let's figure it out together. Like that's not how it works. All right, yeah. So 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 I didn't really know where to start, but my my girlfriend at the time really wanted to go um, storm chasing, and she was trying to find an excuse for me to like put something together because she knows that if I set my mind to something, something eventually happens. And she asked me how we could go storm chasing together. And I was like, well, there's no point putting a model in front of a storm that would be just like pointless. What's like, it'll be pretty, it might be viral, but like, there's no like purpose behind it. And she's like, well, what about we make storms a metaphor for climate change? And then just mm -hmm. have like people in the front of them sort of ignoring what's going on. And I was like, oh, that sounds like could be cool. Two weeks, I put this thing together, <laughs> find a storm chaser online. And then we just line this whole thing up and go storm chasing with this guy called Kelly Delay. And then we use storms as a metaphor for climate change. And it wasn't a very successful series in that it had a lot of views. I think it had like 2 million views on Facebook, but I don't think it did a very great job of actually explaining the reason. And like people were really confused with why storms meant climate change in that like storms have been happening for ever. But it planted that seed for me to realize like, oh yeah, fantasy can be used in service of impact if you did a good job of aligning the metaphors of kind of helping draw those correlations between something that's actually happening that takes a long time that may be invisible and, and something that's like anchored in popular culture. And so that's sort of like the foundation of like how I started getting into the environmental movement. But to be fair, I've never been an environmentalist. I mean, I was a hard rock mining engineer. I live in the city. I'm not a big fan of camping. <laughs> no, I'm very much into the comforts of, of, of city life. But every time I do an environmental project, I need to learn about it. And so then I watch a bunch of documentaries. I start learning about the project. Problem. And through that process of discovering all these different things, then you start like, instead of seeing, you start looking and that's when you start learning. And then as you start learning, you, you kind of feel compelled to do something about it. It's not that I care more about the environment than I care about, I don't know, human suffering, for example. I'm totally open to collaborating on anything. But like now that I've done so many of these environmental projects, I just know more about the problem. So I'm able to draw more metaphors around, around the issue. And my network has shifted a little bit more environmental. When you look at one of your still photos, I, like I said at the very beginning, they are just so surreal and like eye-popping. Now that you've learned from that first experience with the storm chasing, what are the elements you use to further tell the story? I know you touched upon this in the beginning, but it's not just that one still photo. Are you writing about it? Are you making videos? Like, how are you really getting your message across? Is it, is it literally through having learned to tell the story better with the metaphor? Yeah, 
I mean, I think one of the things that has really made my career has been sharing the process of how I do things. So I try really hard to make sure that whatever I do, the end result is impressive. But the way I got there was very ordinary, like very relatable. You know, I I use a lot of volunteers. We go around. It's very scrappy. Like it's not just me directing a Hollywood production budget to redirect that to creating all these things. It's it always looks like a bunch of people coming together in order to do something that they believe in. So that's something that's intentional. For the actual work itself, I go through a number of iterative processes. It's it's not so much a system as much as just constant iteration of ideas. And like, is it possible to summarize what I do in a single sentence? Can I like go up to someone and be like, hey, I did this thing. And is that sentence curiosity invoking? So if I say, I put a mermaid on 10,000 plastic bottles that we collected and cleaned with a bunch of family members, like that seems like really interesting, right? Like I want to, I want to see what this thing looks like. And, and so I think always thinking about how you're going to have that conversation is really important. I think other things that I try to do is emotional. There are certain emotions that resonate more with people that drive them to do something. And for me, the ones that I choose to play with are curiosity, shock and awe. The reason the work is so poppy and so surreal and so painting like is because I try to like shock people into wondering what it is they're they're looking at. And because it's something so cool, they now have to dive deeper to discover, well, how was it done? And if you're looking at how it was done, then you start learning about why it was done. And so in that way, you kind of bring people through this arc and have the ability to educate through adventure and reach a brand new audience that probably didn't care about the issue. And I think that's sort of the foundation of what's important when it comes to any kind of impact work is you don't just want to preach to the choir. You also want to give your choir the tools so that they can preach to others in a way that isn't patronizing and boring and and things that have already been done. You want to like weaponize the people who already know about the issue and give them the ability to talk about what they care about in a better way. Between the the photos that open up the conversation, the videos that explain it deeper, the the press and the write-ups that let anyone who wants to discover more or learn more or click at links you know, it it kind of like layers that whole process in. Most recently, my shift into the experimental space has been because I think digital is kind of dying. We are experiencing so much content saturation that it's really hard to surface any content to like get your content seen. And I'm kind of feeling more and more so that this battle for views, let's call that reach or the breadth of which your content can actually spread is is less and less important because we're back to like the pre-internet days where if you have money you can get stuff seen i mean there was like basically a time in which there were a ton of gatekeepers and you would pay to get your stuff on tv or radio or or something like that or newspapers and then the internet came and disrupted everything suddenly anyone could see anything as long as it was great and creative and shareable And then Facebook and Instagram and all these other platforms and YouTube all started to double down on these other criteria, which really optimize just for ad placement. And now the business model is, well, if you have money, you can pay to get anything seen again. And just because you're creating good content doesn't mean anyone's going to see it. And so we're back to, I think, pre-internet days. 
which is explaining why I've decided to go and shift into a different market, which is the experiential space. Because I think ultimately, as as digital becomes more and more saturated, there are a number of surveys that show that like for Gen Zs and actually even millennials, um, people are spending more and more money on experiences as opposed to items because they just they're they're looking for connection. They're looking for something new, something to enrich their lives. And I think that's kind of the next field to kind of play in. And so if I create an experience um, that has an impactful message that anyone passing through can take a selfie inside of. So now they can, they become their own content creator and they broadcast to their closest group of friends, which is the most effective way to spread anything from a word of mouth perspective. And then I have my photos and then I have my videos. You're just adding all these layers to like increase the resiliency of what you're creating. It's a lot more work. It's a lot more money to do, but that's kind of how my brain is thinking, right? So I'm always looking at like, what can I do with what I have and how can I take it to the next level to reach a greater audience? You're always making those little pivots. I love that. And I think that is why your career has been able to progress in the way that it has. Can you tell us really quickly about your latest experiential project that you've done? Oh, yeah. So the last project that I did in Singapore, it was in February, oh, sorry, March, was called Plasticophobia. We collected 18,000 plastic cups in a day and a half with the help of the National Environment Agency of Singapore and created a sort of like claustrophobic cave made from a bunch of plastic cups. It was created and hosted at the Sustainable Singapore Galleries and it was up for about six weeks. And so people could come and go and take photos. So you can actually go on Instagram with the hashtag Plasticophobia and look at all the different variants of content that was created, which was really, really cool. Some people brought mermaid outfits. Some people, you know, they'd bring like entire crews and there was like tons of students that would go through and they just really, I don't know, there's something really interesting about just open sourcing my art in many ways and just like watching what people would come up with conceptually when you give them like a frame to play inside of. And I mean, I had my own campaign, I had my own video, I had my own photographs. But what was really interesting to me was just watching how other people interpreted it. I ran a survey for everyone who took a photo on Instagram to figure out like what they had done. And it was like actually quite encouraging, like 30 percent of people that I surveyed said they went out to buy a plastic cup um, immediately after, uh, like a tumbler, so that they wouldn't have to use a plastic cup anymore. Uh, Yeah, and I thought that was like a pretty uplifting statistic. We also had a wall that the back of the installation with a pen and just like the whole wall was covered in signatures after the installation was done, which was also super awesome. I don't know, they're just things like that that are are really fun and and encouraging. I am so personally inspired right now listening to your journey and just how you're constantly, like we had mentioned earlier, Earlier, pivoting and pushing and trying to figure out how you can use your art to, you know, move bigger than it is now. And so this moving into experiential and you talking about this is so interesting because I'm getting ready to launch another personal series of mine. And very intuitively, I was gravitating more to an, an experiential experience for people to consume this work and experience this work. And so hearing you talk about this and how you were intentionally trying to go in that direction to get out of the digital space, I think that's really interesting and profound and really makes me want to go down that path more with this current series that I'm going to release soon. I love that you shared that. And the other thing that you said is that it's moving beyond what you created because now people are bringing their own spin to it and then hashtagging Mm -hmm. it putting on Instagram. I think that's really cool. And you know, you sound like somebody who is constantly having amazing ideas. How do you know when you want to move forward with something? Like, how do you know that's the thing that you're going to put all your time and energy and money into? Like every project always starts with some kind of an anchor. And that anchor is either a person, a place, a thing, an amount of money, a client, 
something needs to open up the pathway for a project to happen. And unless I have that piece, I don't tend to think about the idea too much. Mm -hmm. There's always like one piece of the equation that's like the hardest piece. And then if you get that, then you use that one piece to sell all the others, all the other components. So for example, in the straw installation, the anchor was this nonprofit that offered to collect however many straws that they could in a certain amount of time. So then I was able to go like, okay, we have 168,000 straws. Now, what can I do with that? And then that's like the seed of the idea that anchors Mm -hmm. everything in place. With a project in Singapore, the anchor was we had a venue and we had money. And so it's like, okay, we have money, we have a space. These are the constraints. What could we do? Oh, and I had had a friend in Singapore who's in the impact space. So I had like these three kind of anchors at all sort of happened at the same time. And so she was able to kind of help me get familiar with the culture and understand what what a locally relevant resonating issue might be that we thought could be physically possible within the time constraints and budget constraints that we had. And so that like anchored that. And then we start ideating from that point forward. And so I think even if it's a commercial job, for example, with Dell, we did a project with electronic waste. They had seen the work that I created with the mermaids on 10,000 plastic bottles. And they were like, oh, can we do something similar with electronic waste? Electronic waste you have, they said, as much as you can imagine, because we have this this e-waste recycling facility. And so like we did a tour together, we isolated the materials that they wanted to use. And from the materials anchored the concepts along with the space. And then, we, and then from there, we just got creative with that. So there's always like something that locks down that idea. I don't know. I don't think I'm particularly creative on a creativity spectrum. But what I do really well is synthesize information and find metaphors or find visual references that I I, I think I do that pretty well. Like I think it's maybe the problem solving approach of an engineer of being able to just think metaphorically and draw from like this very diverse background and experience from meeting so many people in so many different contexts and having traveled so much that I'm able to kind of pull from all these different places and just mash it all together in something, some kind of cool final result. Wow. What do you think is the hardest thing about what you do? I know in the pre-interview, I had said to you, you have like my dream job. And you said, oh, maybe not after you hear about this. (laughs) What is the hardest part of all that you do? Because I know you travel a ton. You're working with clients. I think the hardest thing is that you don't know if you're going in the right direction. There is no map. There's no one else that I know that is really doing what I do. When you have a day job and you have a career track, it's very linear. Like you can you can structure out what your life is supposed to look like based on your title, your salary, and you have your peers to compare yourself with. I have none of that. There's very little support structure that exists to validate or invalidate the hypotheses that you're kind of putting forward. And like you you sort of naturally spend a lot of time selling yourself and figuring out how to tell your story. And sometimes you just wonder like, am I am I just full of do I actually know what I'm doing and doing? Is this right? I give these presentations and I think I think they're they're the best part of my entire life is probably my my speaking engagements, primarily because they force me to stand in front of a bunch of people and tell them why what I'm doing actually mm-hmm. matters. <laughs> and that just forces so much reflection. If I tell the same story for too long or I'm teaching lessons that I know are true that I'm not applying anymore, like it's just like the best sort of accountability exercise to have to stand in front of a bunch of people and tell this story. And if I look at like the way my story changes over time, it, It's really funny because like you never really know what's happening as you're kind of living it. And and although the pace of what I create looks very frenetic, the truth is I don't do very many projects a year. And so most of my time is actually just spent thinking about ideas that never get produced, building relationships with people who never follow up 
traveling to different things in hopes they open up doors, but they never do. And then on the flip side, just being completely surprised by certain things that you just never thought were even possible. I mean, if you're the kind of person who enjoys consistency and predictability in some way, shape or form, like this is not the life for you, right? Like if you you kind of drew out my life on on a graph and you had this sine wave going up and down, like the amplitude, like the peaks and valleys of my life, I think are extremely high and extremely low. I can have an inbound request for someone who's like, hey, we love your work. We totally want to work together and we've put aside this budget. It's going to be great. Can you give us something so that we can pitch it internally? We don't have any budget for that phase, but like we really think it's going to it's going to go right. And so then they'll give me a bunch of constraints. I'll spend a lot of time. I'll think about something. I'll develop a concept. We'll pitch it. We'll send it in. It'll go through. They're going to be like, we love it. I don't know, whatever. It could be like, we have like $150,000. We're going to try this brand new thing. I'm going to reach, reach in, find a bunch of different partners. And then just when everything looks like it's going to go through, they can just be like, oh, sorry, mm. our strategy changed. And then so I can go from just actually like feeling like I've, I've developed this thing. It's going to work. It's going to be amazing. And I finally found the right partner for it. And then it's just like gone. And that, that happens. Like, you have resilience to that. I mean, that happens to me too. Like it sucks. <laughs> Do you feel like total complete when that happens? Yeah, 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 for sure. It's hard not to take it personally, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's almost like it forces you to question your approach. You're like, well, why why am I putting all this time and effort into like putting concepts together? Is, like, aren't you supposed to get paid? Like, that's where a lot of the work that I do comes from. Like, aren't you supposed to get paid and do that? And I remember talking to a friend though, like, and it's something that I try to like keep in mind is that, that like all that work doesn't just evaporate into thin air, actually just gets recycled into other ideas. It's not wasted time and effort. It, it, if anything, it's just exercise so that you can pitch and put something better together in the future. But you know, if, if that happens to you like five, six, seven times in a row, and you have like months where things are just not going through, like it's super sad, it's super frustrating, more tangible example. So I just talked about my shift from like photography to, to experiential, but I didn't talk about how hard it was. Um, yeah, let's talk about that. Tell us how hard it was. Yeah, last year <laughs> in February, I went to, to, or was it March? I went to South by Southwest to like kind of unveil some of the work that I had done with Dell. I knew at that point, based on the way the launch went, I was like, digital is dying. Like there's no way this can be like the thing that I do. I need, I need to start pivoting into experiential. And so like I knew and I set my mind to it. But I had like this one photo project that I had lined up with Greenpeace for like May. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. But I really want to make my first experience. And so like on paper, you're like, okay, well, the work that I'm doing already looks like installations. They almost look like installations. It shouldn't be too hard to find someone who like understands the value of an experience and who's willing to land the fork over the cash to kind of like make these experiences into reality. Like it just, it felt I was kind of there. So it shouldn't be a big pivot. All that I wanted to do was take my temporary installations and make them into something semi-permanent. But it took me the entire year. Like my first thing that I made was the world's tallest closet in Cairo, but that was all the way down in December. So I basically spent like nine, 10 months just trying to get people to like believe in, in actually like doing something and bring it to life. And so like the world's tallest closet came through, the Singapore one came through, the, the project in Vietnam came through. To get those three up and running, there were just so many things that were just not working out over and over and over again. And the three that did work out had an equal amount of chance of falling through. It's really hard to stay motivated and believe in your vision when like no one else is doing it, right? Like you, you don't have your proof points. It's really hard to have a pulse on whether like, am I just insane or is this actually a thing? You start questioning like your entire career decisions, your career path, whether how sustainable it is. And then this whole process, you're also looking at your runway and you're going like, huh, 
this may, <laughs> this may not be the best decisions. Like, what could I be doing more efficiently now? And you just start like bouncing. I don't know. It's just like this existential question. Like you have these, like these tons of existential questions, because when you're on a project, you don't need to think about what you're doing. You just need to think about executing. But the rest of the time, right. you're just thinking about like why you do what you do, how you do what you do. Are you doing the right thing that you want to do? Are you meeting the right people that you think you're supposed to meeting? And it's like, it's very, very existential. What you just described sounds agonizing, like to have this new idea in this direction you want to go. And I imagine you're like reaching out, pitching, even though you hate pitching, trying to get people interested, like you said, to give you the funding to create this experience in a way that's more permanent. And you said you're questioning everything. Like, how did you sustain yourself through that? Was it through your kind of examining what you had done so far and troubleshooting? Or is there more to it than that? Was there something you were doing internally to get you resilient enough to keep going through it? I think that I've reached a point in my career where there's no plan B. Like I can't go back to being an engineer. Like the, the thing that I do best in the world is what I do. And so I don't have any choice but to figure out how to make it work. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like in, in many ways, it's like I don't have a choice. This is what I do best. This is what I care about most. And I know objectively based on the way people respond to my work and based on the stuff that I've done is that the, I'll always find a way. I think it's less about resiliency and more just about blind faith mm. in the fact that no matter what happens next, I will find a way and it may take a long time and it and I may go the wrong way many times before I find the right one. But that's just part of the process. And, and I don't think I've come up with any like particular internal workings to deal with it, to cope with it per se. I mean, I think one of the things that I don't do very well is is like take the time to enjoy the wins when they're there. And like, I'm always future focused as opposed to present focused. I'm always thinking about the next thing. Like, great, that went well. What's next? What can I do better next time? And I'm always kind of looking forward. And I think that cycle is getting a little bit tiring. But I think what you're going after is like whether or not there were some tips that I could offer to people. And I don't think that I particularly have them except to just take time when things aren't working out and just enjoy when nothing is happening because those moments are also pretty good. It means that you have more time to help the people around you. It means that you have more time to think and plan your next steps. It means you have more time to figure out where things go. So actually a, a good example of that is <laughs> I reached like October, November of, of last year. And I was like, okay, this entire year I've done two, pro no, I've done one project. I only launched the Dell project, but it was created the year before. And so effectively by October, I had created one single series and I was like, where did my year go? I've been working so hard and I have like nothing to show for it, at least on paper. And so I started this exercise where I just started photographing the people that I was meeting every single day. And I realized that actually, although I hadn't made much progress in my own personal life, in my professional life, Rather, I had actually just spent a lot of my time meeting new people and helping them out, helping elevate what they were doing. And I was like, oh, okay. So this entire time, I haven't been doing nothing. I've actually just been like networking really intensively. I gave myself some new projects to do. Like I did this thing where I went around and just started creating a small photo series of social entrepreneurs. I helped a friend make a Kickstarter video. Like these are things that I don't publish because it's not under my brand. But because I had the time, I was just spending it, investing it and in helping other people around me. And so effectively, what I've tried to think of is like, ultimately, so much of the work that we get is built on the relationships that we have. And that I wasn't necessarily losing time by investing in the people around me that that I was just trying to help. It just wasn't going as fast as I could. But because I had the time to help people, like there's nothing wrong with that, right? And actually, one of the images that I shot during this 
time frame of a social entrepreneurs ended up bringing in five figures later on because it got licensed by a corporate partner. I didn't create it with that intention. I created it with the intention of helping out a friend, but it ended up having like a payoff later on. And so I think that's just kind of a small example of how things are generally less dramatic than you think they are. But it's really hard when you're in the moment to see the light at the end of the tunnel, even though that, that's that's really over dramatic because it's not that dramatic. <laughs> it's like all first world problems in, some, in many ways. <laughs> I just think you gave a lot of really good tidbits in there. You said you don't really have tips, but you really did. And I just want to highlight a couple of things. You said you don't have a plan B. Like this is what you know, what you want to do. And this is where your strengths are. And you have a blind faith and you keep going with it. And I loved that. And just really quickly, do you think people just give up too soon? I think that's a hard question to answer because for some people, this lifestyle is just the wrong thing. Yeah. Right. And so I don't think there's an objective right and wrong about giving up too soon. I think it's you have to do what's best for you. And for some people, that's not this kind of really stressful up and down lifestyle. But some people like thrive on it. Like as much as I'm complaining about it, out of these times comes so much really awesome randomness that I really, really thrive on. And so for me, the the, the trade off is worth it. Because you like this lifestyle, right? I think for some people, maybe they like it and they aspire for more, but they stop because they got too many no's. They got too many rejections. And it's just they don't feel like they're good enough. I think it's really just like, how much do you really want it? Mm -hmm. Right. Like yeah. Another way to describe it is like grit. What is driving you and how are you going to double down on the things that you truly want? And there's no replacement for that. Like you either want it enough or you don't want it enough. And that's entirely up to you to decide. Yeah. And you know, I have given up on many things. I give up on, on ideas all the time. But like the thing that I don't want to give up is my lifestyle. I want to find a way, any way to kind of maintain this ability to travel, to be creative, to meet inspirational people, to be surprised, to be delighted, to grow and to create more, more work that the world has never seen that I hope is going to be useful. That's kind of the primary driver. And so I think now that I've said it and you've requoted me, this no plan B thing... <laughs> It's false, right? Like I could always go and get a day job. Like I can work at a marketing consulting company. I could probably get a job in an advertising agency. I could definitely get a job as a barista. I have a lot of plan Bs actually, but there's no plan B for the life that I want to have. And so I just created this belief that no matter what, I have to find a way. And this is entirely in my own head. And maybe that's my greatest strength. Like I created my own religion <laughs> and this is like, this is the meaning of life. And I'm like, okay, now I have to do it. Like, I don't, <laughs> so yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but like, I guess this conversation is sort of bringing that to light. I'm like, oh, okay. Interesting. Well, I like it when my guests have aha moments. So that's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you thought about that. You know, you said something else too. You talked about how you're always so future focused. And I think that that's something that a lot of creatives are like, it's really easy to be focused on what's the next thing that we can do. And then on the flip side, I feel like it's really easy to feel like complete crap when we're not making things, right? Like we feel good when we're out there with the great launches that are getting a lot of traction and making impact. And when we're in our slower periods, it's really easy to feel like crap. And I really loved what you said about how actually, even though you only had one big launch in the year, you spent that time doing like something personal to you, taking pictures of people. You did it because that's what you wanted to do without any other goal than you wanting to do it or help a friend. And from that, you ended up making five years on the picture that you license. It's not like 
you shot those pictures with that intention, but in a slower period and season in your life, you did it. And then who knows what could have come from that? And that is a consistent thing I see over and over again as I talk to people on this show and in my own life is just make the stuff you want to make without judgment. Don't get caught up in, oh, I saw because this isn't happening for me and I'm in a slower professional period in my life. Just embrace that time and know that there is a purpose to it beyond being successful at work. And then amazing things can unfold and come from that. So I just wanted to call that out too, because I thought you sharing that was really meaningful. Yeah. And and maybe another way to think about it, the way I think about it is a little different. It's not just about staying busy. It's about building new staircases, Mm. steps towards the direction that you want to head towards. So like I'm always, I mean, you can call it planting seeds or building, building like steps to get to the, the platform that you're trying to get to. It's usually very intentional. So for example, the thing where I said I took pictures of social entrepreneurs, it was it was still very calculated. It was that, okay, if these startups become successful in the impact space, I might just be in a position where I might create work for myself in the future. This is in a network, a small network of, of social entrepreneurs. If I build this up, I can actually start like creating more interesting introductions for myself. I can start having more inter- interesting conversations. Maybe throughout my interactions with different entrepreneurs, I can actually start getting introductions to different like startup accelerators or venture capitalists, I can also learn a little bit more about the startup space and the entrepreneurial space. Maybe there are some lessons that I can bring back into my own work. Like, so it's all very much strategically placed. And I think that's probably something that differentiates me from a lot of creatives. A lot of creatives are just like impulse driven where they go like, oh, I really want to do this thing. And then they just go and do it. And it's like, but, but that was going north when you were trying to go south. And I think when people aren't focused enough on a direction, it can also be at a detriment to their career. Dude, no, that makes perfect sense. And I'm learning so much from you, by the way, in this conversation. And um, the idea of taking a personal project, but having some strategy to it, I think is genius. Because like you said, it's not just impulse driven. It is moving you forward on the staircase you just described. Very awesome. This has been a while. I just have a couple more questions for you if you're cool with that, because I don't know, you're very thoughtful. You had mentioned earlier that your girlfriend said, if you set your mind to something, something happens. What are your top tips for listeners to achieving their goals? If the work that you're doing is collaboration driven, you have to stop thinking about how you're going to benefit from it and rather what you can offer to people. Let's say you're a photographer and you want to work with a fashion designer, for example. You can't go up to her and be like, oh my gosh, your dresses are amazing. I want to photograph them for my portfolio because that sounds like you should just either buy it Mm -hmm. or rent it. Um, Instead, you should go and say, hey, I noticed your work. It looks absolutely phenomenal. I noticed that in your portfolio, you don't have any images of your dresses in, in, in nature. And I happen to be an amazing like location photographer, I think we could have this collaboration and I'd love to work together on on helping get your work out there. I think always reframing things to benefit others and doing the work for them so that all they need to do is say yes is kind of the, like the foundation for any good collaboration. Wait, sorry, what was the question? It was top tips. Top tips for listeners to achieve their goals. I'm very fascinated about the way you move through the world. Like you have an idea and you do it. And I think that a lot of people have a block from taking action. And I'm curious, what are your tips for people to actually move forward and take action on their goals and the things they want to do and make? So I think it depends on how you're motivated. Some people are intrinsically motivated. Others like myself are extrinsically motivated. I don't know what the tips would be for someone who's internally motivated other than probably just getting to a place where you feel safe, secure, happy, and creative. But for like extrinsically motivated people like myself, it's very much about just going out and finding the relationship that will anchor things. I'm a little bit of a giver. 
a lot of what like gives me energy is like helping the people around me, elevating themselves. And so I find that like promising things to other people is a great way of creating accountability. So for example, right now on Instagram, I started this 60 day challenge for myself where every day I post a lesson and I hate writing. I really, really dislike writing, but I gave myself this expectation to towards others where I can't give up because if I did and stopped spontaneously, people would notice and they would call me out on it. I have these posts right now and each one is numbered. It's like one out of 60, two out of 60, three out of 60. And I did that because I know myself. I know that I will lose steam in the middle. I get really excited about things. I get bored in the middle. But if other people are expecting something from me, then I become more accountable. And setting up the pressure for myself to go out and create something through setting expectations with others is sort of the best way for me to do something. And this works for like small projects as much as it works for big projects. So with the straw thing, for example, when the nonprofit said, hey, we'll collect however many straws you need. And I was like, okay, cool, go for it. Um, let me know when you've collected the straws. And then the next day she makes like a web page that I'm going to be coming to Vietnam to do this collaboration. So this is why they're collecting all these straws. I was like, oh, <laughs> holy shit okay, this is actually going to happen now. You know, it wasn't just me talking anymore. It wasn't just like an email thread. It was like actually something that was there and it was going to happen regardless. I'm like, okay, that's going to happen. So I try very hard to find these sort of commitments from others. And the minute someone else really commits, that really helps. It's not like a hundred percent formula. Like I'm sure I let people down all the time because sometimes like either I lose inspiration, I'm just not feeling the vibe, like what, whatever number of reasons where like certain like logistical things fall through that really helps to like, I mean, make all parties accountable. That's probably why accountability partners and groups help a lot with people too, for, especially for those that are extrinsically motivated. And I think Gretchen Rubin has a test about this to figure out what type you are so you know what kind of motivation you need to keep going. So I like that you brought up the motivation. Yeah, that's really good. And you know, as you were talking, I thought of a question I wanted to ask you before earlier on, but you talked about that transition you made from creating work that was really surreal and fantasy and really beautiful to then you realizing, well, maybe I can do something like that and combine it with social justice and add a little bit more meaning to the work. Now as a creator, do you like your work more now because you have that level of meaning to it? I think I find more pride in my work. Yeah. Because before that, it was very much just creating for the sake of creating. And in many ways, I feel like that's a little bit ego driven. Mm -hmm. Like it's like, oh, look at this thing I did. But now it's more like I don't actually care so much about the work. I care about the impact that it has on other people. Like I want it to move the needle in some way, shape or form. And that's actually a lot of like what drives my current frustration with the work that I do, because art is very qualitative and not very quantitative. It's very hard to measure whether or not your work has had an impact. And so those are the questions that I'm trying to resolve myself internally. Yeah, I definitely feel more sense of pride, more focus, more resiliency, because I now have a mission greater than myself. Like it's not just about me. It's about the fact that I actually think more content like this needs to exist. And while I don't know if my work is the one that will move the needle, I really want others to feel like they can do the same. And so like there are a lot of those things that really help give me a lot more, I guess, courage to pursue pursue this thing when when things get hard. And how do you want people to remember this episode with you? <laughs> I hope that people just, I don't know, think through the episode and realize that they can be anyone they want to be. They can do anything they want to do. They can achieve anything that they want to achieve. They just, I mean, everything has a price to pay, but you can also adapt the world to whatever you want it to become. I think that most people who grew up in a 
first world developed country who have had the privilege of getting an education are far further ahead than most people. And that the world that we are entering right now is one that nobody knows what's going to happen next, which means that if you are willing to put in the work, you can truly carve out a place for yourself. And that Maybe the, th the last thing is that, you know, one person can make a difference. You know, one person can move the needle. And sometimes it really just takes one person to get that ball rolling. Oh, I have such a big smile in my face right now. Thank you so much for all your time today. I appreciate your thoughtfulness so much and just the incredible work that you're putting out into the world. I really do think you are making an impact with your incredible photography and the message you're putting out there. So thank you for being an inspiration to all of us. Thank you for listening to me ramble. <laughs> you are great. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review the show on iTunes and share it with a friend. Don't be shy. Reach out to me anytime online and I will catch you next week on the next episode.